If you lose your wife, husband, she dies. And when she dies, you say, I lost my wife. But if you leave your wife, that means that you abandoned her. And what Jesus is saying about the church at Ephesus is this, that you went out with a high hand. And a revival began in Ephesus that was so great, you brought all of the paraphernalia related to bondage and burned it. And you went out under the high hand of God. But you have left your first love. You've, been, you've fallen victim to Satan's counterattack. Now I wonder how it is with you this morning. I wonder if you have the same triumphant, victorious defiance today, the same spirit of enthusiasm and excitement today as the day you were delivered from bondage the first time. So that this story illustrates that principle. And it answers two questions. Watch this. It answers the question, what are the symptoms what are the characteristics of falling victim to Satan's counterattack? And then what do you do about it? All right, number one. The first symptom that you have fallen victim to the counterattack is the loss of joy. Now, when they were delivered out of Egyptian bondage, they went out singing. And they, re they were rejoicing, and there was great joy. But when you get to verse 10, all the joy has evaporated. It's disintegrated. Now, one of the principal characteristics or marks of the Christian life is joy. In Bunyan's classic Pilgrim Progress, when that burden rolled off his back, the scripture says that he gave three lips, leaps for joy and went away singing. So that joy is the note that runs through the song of New Testament salvation. And one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. So that the first characteristic of the Christian life and one of the greatest characteristics of the Spirit-filled life is joy. I mean such joy that no circumstance can, can erase it or evaporate it. I wonder how it is with you today. Do you still possess that same joy that you once knew when you came to the Lord in fullness? And then there's a second characteristic symptom. It's the it's the symptom that can, can, can be described as a change of attitude. Now, as I mentioned, they, when they were delivered, they went out in triumphant defiance. and They got outside of town, turned around, stuck there just in a corporate move. They all just kind of one, two, three, and stuck their tongue out. I mean, that's Tidwell translation. You get the picture, don't you? I mean, they were beating their breast. They were so defiant and triumphant. And now the scripture says that they are sore afraid. They're so frightened. They're sore. It sure is tragic when you have to live down your testimony, isn't it? And we make so many promises to God what we're going to do. And we really mean to do that. And we have this 
triumphant attitude, defiant attitude. I, as I studied this, I thought of Simon Peter. And he was sitting with Jesus there the last night and Jesus turns to Simon and he says, Simon, you're going to deny me three times before dawn. And with this triumphant defiance, Simon says, not me, anybody else but me, everybody else, not, not I, I'm not, I'm not, I'll never do that. And it wasn't but just a while. And I, and I have a feeling that when he heard that rooster crow and saw and heard the announcement of the dawn and when he turned to see the Lord, he remembered that he had been so defiant. It sure is tragic when you have to live down your testimony. And there are some of us who have made so many promises to God. And I have an idea that these Egyptians, as they begin to bear down on them, and they saw the fear that, faced, that was in their faces, they must have thought to themselves, now where's the defiance? Now where's the victory? The change, a change of attitude. Third symptom was a grumbling, complaining, murmuring, griping spirit. You know what happens when a person gets saved or when, when a person enters into fullness of, of the spirit life? You have to have a magnifying glass to find any griping or complaining or murmuring. You just don't find it. And they never look on the dark side. They always are positive. They always see the, 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 the positive things. You know how to tell when the Egyptians are bearing down on you. You know how to tell when you have the same characteristics of the old bondage. You get that mood that makes you want to gripe and complain about everything and everybody. I can always tell when a person is slipping away from his commitment to God is when he begins to complain and he gripes and he grumbles about life. You just don't find that in a spirit-filled believer. And then there's a misdirected blame. And so they begin to blame Moses and Aaron. And they said, you, you guys brought us out here to die. You, you are responsible for all, this, all these problems that we have. You're the one responsible for our suffering. And they begin to lay the blame on Moses. Have you noticed that when you begin to slip away from God and when the characteristics of the old bondage begins to set in, that you begin to try to find somebody to blame for it? If old so-and-so hadn't done this, if this hadn't happened or that, and we try to find something or somebody on which to place the blame. And then there is a, an absurd, absurd reasoning. When a person gets out of touch with God, he looks for all, he loses all common sense. And so this is what they said. They said, I don't know why you brought us out here in the, in the wilderness because there wasn't enough places to be buried in that land. That makes sense. Does that make sense to you? 
They said, we know why you brought us out here. It's so that we could die out here in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, Moses didn't bring them out there. God did. And, and they lost all common sense. Somebody came up to me one time and they said, Preacher, I've got a question I want to ask you. They said, I heard that you bought nine vacuum cleaners for this church. I said, good grief. Does that make sense to you that I'd buy nine vacuum cleaners? I mean, think about that. that that's not... That ain't, that's not even common sense. When we get out of touch with God, we, we get completely unreasonable. You ever notice that? And they lost all touch with common sense. It had been better, they said, if we'd stayed in Egypt. That's not true. And I remember old Elijah, and he's up on Mount Carmel, and he's, you know, filled with God. And he's mocking the gods of Baal. And, and, and finally it's time for him to call on his God. And he calls down fire. And there's a revival that happens on Mount Carmel. And old Jezebel is just incensed. And she sends a telegram to Elijah and she says, I'll tell you what, before night time, I'm going to kill you. And this guy turns and runs, and you check it out. He runs almost 100 miles. The distance he ran from Mount Carmel to, down to Beersheba is between 90 and 100 miles. And the amazing thing is that he ran ahead of chariots. That guy ran faster than the horse that he was cared. The, the world's record marathon was, was, was Put this in the Guinness Book of Records. He ran a hundred miles faster than the horses. He was so frightened. And if you check it out, where he ran was to a country where Jezebel's brother was king. Does that make sense to you? Here's a guy who when he hears Jezebel's threat, he runs in the wrong direction. Listen to me carefully. When you get out of touch with God, you always run in the wrong direction. And he got out there in the, in, in the wilderness and he, he got under what, what, what the Bible calls the juniper tree. It's really not a tree, it's a bush. He had to crawl on his stomach to get under it. And under that juniper bush, he prayed that God would kill him. He didn't have to do that. All he had to do was stay back over there at Carmel and Jezebel would have accomplished that. I mean, he saved himself a 90-mile run. He, all he had to do was just stay in Carmel. And God, you, you, you understand what I'm saying? That when you get out of touch with God, you lose all common sense. Hear me now. And that which is bad seems good. And that which is good seems bad. And there is a result to all of this. And the result is that the forward progress of the children of Israel was paralyzed. And it always happens that when people fall victim to Satan's counterattack, and some of us have, the forward progress of the people of God comes to a grinding halt. There's no church growth. And there's no spiritual growth. And there's no individual growth. 
And the amazing thing is, is that God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he'll come after you. Now, the question I am frequently asked as I'm leading my class through Genesis and Exodus, what does that mean that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? Well, let me tell you something. The reason that Pharaoh's heart was hardened is not the important thing. The important thing is the result of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. We need to find out why it happened that way. Now listen, God says in verses 3 and 4, the reason, the result of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is this, because I want to prove to you and to Egypt that I'm faithful in any situation. Now how can you deal with Satan's counterattack? The question is, what do we do when Satan comes against us who have been delivered. Well, God gives two commands. Now this is, uh, some old Quaker said, God, I, don't, I, I can understand why you don't have any more friends than you do. You're so rough on the ones you got. I mean, this seems so strange. God gives two commands. Be still and go forward. Now does that seem, seem strange? The first command is that you stand still. Now let me tell you what goes, what's going on there. God is saying that, that when Satan comes against you, the best thing you can do at first is to empty your life so that he can fill it. Stand still. I was reading in my quiet time this week a passage from the book of Isaiah and Isaiah said, since the beginning of the world, no one has seen a, or heard of a God such as ours who waits, who works for those who wait for Him. Now the best thing you can do when Satan counterattacks is to empty your life so that God can fill it. It's to get still. In fact, he said, if you will just get quiet, if you'll just be still, I'll take care of the Egyptians. And if you'll read in the 15th chapter of the book of Exodus, when they got through on the, the Red Sea and were on the other side, they broke out in song and Moses said to these enemies who have come out against you. Now watch this. You'd think that Moses would say, these enemies that have come out against us, you've destroyed. No, he's saying this, that when you stand still and you empty your life so that God can fill it, then everything and everybody that comes against you doesn't really come against you. It comes against God. And what he's saying is this, that you first come to the place where you can say to God, Okay, God, have thine own way. I am the potter, thou art the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Now the first time I was introduced to what we call the deeper life, I thought that what 
that meant was that you became totally passive. And that when you became totally passive, God moved in and God took over. And frankly, I never could find that place. I've come to understand that the most difficult thing in all of life is to let go and let God take over. And the first thing I want to do is to take this matter in my hands or take this problem in my hands and I want to work it out and I want to get busy and I want to solve it. That's not the best thing you can do first. The best thing you can do is to be sure that God is in total control of your life. I wonder how it is with you. And then he said, after you stand still, he said, go forward. Now Moses and the people cried out to God, and God said to them, now watch this, he said, why are you crying out to me? Go forward. You see, there's a time when we need to pray, and there's a time when we need to proceed. And some of us have been praying for God to, you know, to come and take over our life. And we've been praying for years for God to do these marvelous and mighty things in us. There's a time when you need to quit praying and go forward. And if you want to write into the margin of the scripture there, you just put the little words into the sea. What God is saying is this, get up from there and stop praying and go forward into the sea. I want to tell you something you might not have thought of. When Moses and the children of Israel, two million strong, marched out into the Red Sea, there was still water there. The author of the book of Hebrews says that by faith Moses walked as though on dry land. Now what he meant was this, that when Moses led the people into the Red Sea, I mean the water hadn't parted yet. They walked off into the water. And it wasn't until they stepped into the water that it was parted. I got a feeling that when they heard Moses say, Speaking for God, when God said, go forward into the sea, they must have said, Moses, have you looked out to see what's forward? Let me tell you something. It doesn't matter what's forward if you're filled with God. It doesn't matter what's forward if God is in control. And so he said, march forward into the sea. Now they were wanting two things to happen. They were wanting God to dry up the water and kill the Egyptians. He wasn't going to do either one of them. Now if you're waiting for God to part the water and give you dry ground on which to walk, and if you're waiting for God to destroy all the temptations that belong to the farmer life, you can forget it. He's not going to kill the Egyptians, and He's not going to part the water until you step forward on, in faith. You know what we need to do this morning? If we're in bondage, and some of us are, we need to, we need to proceed.
You say, I don't feel like praying. I don't care. Doesn't matter. Pray. You say, I don't feel like witnessing. I don't care. Witness. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying that the way out of bondage is to get up and do what you know already God wants you to do. It's time to quit praying. And it's time to proceed. Now, the principle that abides in the Christian life is this. That the moment you are delivered from bondage, Satan begins his counterattack. And that counterattack will continue until by faith you go forward. Let's pray together. Father, you have spoken. And in spite of all that would hinder, we have heard. And now I pray, Father, that we'll proceed to do your will. And we know that Satan will do everything to prevent folks from making the decision that you lay on your, their life. And I pray that we'll get up and go on to the glory of Christ in the name of Jesus. Now that, look here, there are three invitations this morning. I'm going to invite you this morning if you're here without Christ, to get up out of your seat and come to this place where we can introduce you to the Lord. Do you want Him to be your Savior? Take away your sin? Give you an eternal home? Come today. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your place in a moment and come and place your life in this church. It's time to quit praying about it. It's time to get on with it. And those of us who have, who have felt that we have slipped away from all of that testimony of what we were going to do, it's time to make a new commitment of your life. It's time to quit blaming somebody else and cry, it is me, O oh Lord. It's in need today. We'll pray with you. We'll, make, we'll help you make that commitment. Would you do it while we stand to sing? We invite you to come.